thank you everyone for coming along tonight. I'm Elizabeth Dernley and I work in the French department at UCL and I'm joined here by Erin Gores from the Scandinavian Study Department and Thompson Dernley who is a harpist based in Edinburgh. And tonight we wanted to share some of the stories um, from the Middle Ages that Erin and I work on. So the type of stories that we'll be introducing today are known as Breton Lays. Um, they were called that because they were supposedly based on the stories of the ancient Bretons. Um, we didn't have any examples of this, but all the stories start saying that they come from the tales um, that were told in Brittany by the ancestors of the people that wrote them down. So Breton Lays are short stories. Um, the sorts of topics they cover include things like love, chivalry, the supernatural. So they're essentially medieval fairy tales. And tonight we're going to be telling some of these stories and then we're going to be encouraging you to um, make some adaptations of Breton Lays yourself. Um, these stories were first recorded in 12th century England in about the 1170s by a woman who, about whom we only know her name and her country. She signed in some of the manuscripts of the Lays as Marie de France. So no, she's called Marie and she was from France. So nobody really knows who she was. She was obviously an aristocratic woman. She was able to translate Latin. She knew French. She knew English. Um, been very serious but forward to who she was. Some people have suggested she was a half-sister of Henry II. Some people have suggested she was an abbess, but we, we don't really know. Um, it was obviously it's quite unusual for women to write at all in the Middle Ages. It wasn't unknown, but the fact that we have a woman writing down these stories is quite remarkable. And Marie wrote a collection of 12 of these stories, and she explains at the beginning, in a prologue, that she thought about translating from Latin, but she didn't really want to do that because everybody did that. So she thought she'd do something a bit different. She talked about lays that she'd heard um, that had been based on the stories of the Bretons, and she decided that she had to record these lays so that other people would remember them. So these are recorded in England, as I said. So even though relatively few people actually spoke French as their mother tongue um, a few generations after the Norman Conquest, French continued to be the language of literature for quite some time. So we have these stories written in French. Um, and we have several other examples of these stories that weren't written by Marie. Um, about 35 have survived that were written. We know there must have been many, many more. Um, so we know we've only got a very small proportion of what was written. Um, so these stories um, were believed to have been set to music. We don't exactly know how they were set, um, but many of the stories mention the instruments that formed the music of the lay. So harps are mentioned an awful lot, um, fiddles, ropes, which is another kind of string instrument. Um, so we don't know, as I said, exactly how the two were combined. Uh, and I really want to stress we're not trying to recreate an authentic um, reproduction of what was in the Middle Ages. We don't really know, but they might have done a bit like this. Um, so uh, what we want to do tonight is just show some ways in which you could combine storytelling and music. So the Lays are very popular, um, originally written in French, but they were also translated into other European languages. So we have quite a few examples of them in medieval English as well. Um, for example, in the Canterbury Tales, some of those are Breton Lays. So do people know if come across the wife of Bath's tale and the Canterbury Tales. Yeah, that's a Breton lay. Um, and they were also translated as well into Old Norse. 
um, which Aaron uh, will tell you a bit more about. Yeah. Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, yes, yeah, so about a century after Marie de France uh, composed or compiled the Lays, um, French culture, literature, art, and ideas um, became very trendy, very popular in Scandinavia, um, and particularly at the court of the King of Norway, Haakon Haakonarsson, um, who ruled uh, for the most part of the mid-13th century. Um, and Haakon really went out of his way to cultivate a kind of special relationship with England, um, and particularly King Henry III. Um, they exchanged gifts, they wrote letters to each other. Um, Haakon modelled his, his new palace on Henry's palace uh, of Westminster in, in London. Um, and he, he invited Anglo-Norman church leaders and political advisors to come to his court in Norway to bring over these ideas that were circulating uh, in England and France at the time. Um, and he was very interested in the cultural life of the Anglo-Norman and French courts. Um, so he invited over, we think, uh, a man whose name uh, we know only as Brother Robert. Uh, he signs himself as Brother Robert or Abbot Robert in some of the manuscripts dating from this time. Um, Brother Robert, because he's called Brother, he seems to have been a clergyman, uh, a cleric, and he was working at Haukun's court. Um, and one of his main jobs that we can tell from, the, from this perspective, from the perspective of many, many centuries later, one of his main jobs was to translate the lays of Marie de France, other lays, um, and other literature in that sort of area. So tales about King Arthur, tales about Tristan and Isolde, these were all very popular and translated by Brother Robert and other people like him. Um, and he also wrote a preface. He wrote a preface which he put before Marie de France's preface, so he sort of got to frame her work with his. Um, and in that preface he writes, This book, which the esteemed King Haakon brought into Norse from the French language, may be called the book, the book of lays. Poets from Brittany compose these songs, which are performed on harps, fiddles, hurdy-gurdies, lyres, dulcimers, psalteries, ropes, and other stringed instruments of all kinds that men make to amuse themselves and others in this world. And the name of the lays in Old Norse, strenglekos, means um, songs for strings, streng, songs for stringed instruments. Um, and as Elizabeth said, we have no idea how they were performed, but the idea of musical performance and a musical accompaniment is very much part of the text that we have now. Um, and Brother Robert also tells us in this preface that he wanted to translate the lays because those who lived in the olden days were skilled in their arts, discerning in their reason, clever in their counsels, valiant with weapons, well-mannered in the customs of the court, and famous for every kind of nobility. So um, there's a real kind of ennobling in the act of listening and, and reading and telling these stories. Um, Robert, and, and through him, King Haakon, um, seems to be almost sort of importing the ideals of knightliness and uh, chivalry, as it were, to the court, um, almost civilizing, if you like, his sort of wild Vikings of Scandinavia into sort of semi-French courtiers, all through the telling and retelling of fairy stories of lays. Um, we only have one manuscript of the lays, uh, the complete lays. Um, I'll pass it around 
it looks like this. Um, they're written in prose, not poetry, when they're in Old Norse. Um, this manuscript, this is obviously a facsimile, not the real manuscript, um, uh, was written around the year 1270 in the west of Norway in Bergen. Um, so around, just, just after uh, King Haakon's uh, reign, just after Brother Robert was writing. Um, but we know that, as Elizabeth said, the Lays travelled. They travelled all over Scandinavia. We have many different examples of literature derived from the ideas in the Lays. Um, and we have, as well, a rather wonderful fragmentary manuscript that was found in Iceland. And it shows that the Lays even got there um, but I don't know if you can see it. The poor manuscript was then cut up and it was found many centuries later in the lining of a bishop's hat in those pointed bishop mitres um, that they were. So um, good for us uh, that we actually found it. But of course, this is a very fragmentary manuscript because the edges have been cut off. But it does tell us that they traveled far and that many, many people were interested in them. So I'll pass this around. It does belong to UCL Library, so please um, don't spill wine on it. And now to give you a flavor of what these stories were like, we'd like to tell you a couple of them. And Elizabeth will start with that. So this is the lay about Bistafre which means werewolf in Breton. Many years ago, it often used to happen in Brittany that men would become werewolves and live in the forest and eat wild animals. Now once in Brittany, there lived a noble baron who had a beautiful and accomplished wife and they were very happily married. But there's one thing that often needs to trouble the wife. Every week, for three days, her husband would disappear and she would have no idea where he'd gone. So eventually she said to him, Husband, I love you so very much. I feel you're keeping a great secret from me. Where do you go when you disappear for three days every week? And he didn't want to tell her, but she persisted. And eventually, he told her the truth. My lady, he said, I become a werewolf. I live in the forest and I eat wild animals. Now his wife, when she heard this, became very frightened and said, but husband, when you're a werewolf, do you wear your clothes or do you stay naked? And he said, my lady, I am completely naked apart from my wolf skin. And now the woman was very frightened, but still she questioned him. What do you do with your clothes when you're a werewolf? And he answered, my lady, I hide my clothes under a certain stone in the woods by the old ruined chapel. But this is a great secret, because if anybody ever found my clothes and took them, I could no longer assume human form, and I would have to remain a werewolf forever. Now his wife was extremely frightened when she heard that her husband was a werewolf. And soon, she no longer loved him. And she began to think of how she could get rid of her husband. And so she hatched a wicked plan. There was a neighbouring knight who had long been in love with this lady. And she'd always refused him. 
But now she summoned him and told him that she would be his completely if he would do what she told her. She revealed that her husband was a werewolf and told him all about the clothes. And he promised to go get them. So, the next time that the man went into the forest and disappeared, the night came creeping after him. And he found the stone by the old ruined chapel, and he took the clothes, and he brought them to the woman. And so poor Bisclavray, as such he become, was forced to remain in the forest. A year went by, and one day, the king went hunting in the forest with his men. in the woods and they went farther and farther in and then suddenly they came upon an enormous black wolf the king's dog set upon the wolf at once and were about to destroy it and then a very strange thing happened the wolf went straight up to the king and went up on its hind legs and begged for mercy and then it took hold of the king's foot in its paws. And the king was astonished. This is clearly no ordinary wolf, he said. It obviously possesses human intelligence. Nobody must harm this animal. I will take him back to my palace and he will live with me under my protection. And so the king and his hunting party went back to the king's palace with Bisclavray trotting after him. lived happily at the palace with the king. By day it followed the king everywhere he travelled, and at night it slept at the king's feet. And everybody loved this animal because it was gentle and good-tempered and friendly to all around it. Until one day. The king held a great court and invited all his knights and all his barons. And among them was none other than the knight who had married his wife. They came in through the hall door, and Bisclavray, sitting at the king's feet, saw them, and he began to growl on the back of his throat. And then suddenly, he ran through the hall, he sprang at his former wife, and bit off her nose! way. And then the king's wisest counsellor said, clearly this wolf must have a good reason for doing this. He obviously bears some grudge against this woman. Let's question her and find out what she knows. So all the king's knights questioned the woman and eventually she confessed the truth. That her former husband had indeed been a werewolf and she had taken his clothes to prevent him from assuming human form and she believed that this was none other than her husband. So the king ordered her to go fetch the clothes at once. 
which he did. And they placed these clothes by the feet of this buffet. And he picked them up in his mouth and he trotted off to the king's chambers. After a little while, the king and his counsellors peeked cautiously around the door. And what do you think they found? Lying on the bed was a handsome knight, fully clothed, fast asleep. As he walked in through the door, the knight sat up, and the king recognised his former baron, who had disappeared mysteriously a year ago. And the king was absolutely overjoyed. As for the wife and her new husband, the king banished them far away. country and had many children and I'll tell you a strange thing almost all of their female children were born without noses <laughs> but the king then summoned his best minstrel to write down this lay so that the mysterious adventure of Bisclavray who turned into a werewolf should never be forgotten the story of Bisclavre is when it is translated by Brother Robert into Old Norse, um, Brother Robert adds a little kind of coda at the end. Um, and he says, well, this used to happen all the time in Scandinavia, even more than in France, because there's lots of wolves in Scandinavia. Um, and he says he even knew a, an old man who used to be a werewolf, um, just because that's so much more common in the Nordic countries than it is in continental Europe. So, you know, do watch out if you go there. Um, I'm going to tell you uh, another story, uh, The Lay of Dune, um, which was not uh, attributed to Marie de France, but is an anonymous French lay. Um, but, but Brother Robert, or the person who translated the lays into Old Norse, um, included it in the collection um, without any kind of comment about whether it was by Marie or not. And so it sits alongside all of the other lays. And The Lay of Dune begins. Then a strang lake er dun hitter, kunu flester hatler er strang lake i haven numet. This lay, which is called Dune, is known to most of those who have learned lays. And Dune tells the story of a proud lady who lives in Edinburgh 
in Scotland. master of the realm and master of herself and as such she is reluctant to marry and so to give up that independence. She therefore declares one day that she will marry no one but the man who can in one day ride from Southampton in the south of England all the way north to Edinburgh to her castle. Many men try, a few even succeed. However, this challenge is really just a decoy that hides the true nature of this lady's cunning plan for independence. Because this lady is no ordinary lady. She owns a magic killer bed. <laughs> And when the men arrive, tired from their journey, completely worn out from their long ride, the lady greets them sweetly and tucks them into bed. And they fall asleep immediately and sleep very, very, very deeply until they're smothered by the bedclothes. And so the lady remained unmarried. That is, she remained unmarried until a Breton knight named Dune heard of her and her lands and decided to take up her challenge. So with his magic horse, Bayard, he set sail for England. And in one day he did ride, he rode from Southampton all the way up to Edinburgh. And the lady welcomed him and showed him to the bedroom and tucked him in and there he spent the night where so many nights before had met their end. Dune is no ordinary knight, however. He suspected something. So he didn't get into bed. He spent the whole night sitting awake on the hard floor so that he wouldn't drift off. And so, of course, in the morning, the lady went to the bedchamber, opened up the doors, and found Dune alive. And she was understandably rather put out. And so she gave him a second challenge. If he's a true knight, she says, he will take up another challenge. He can ride on this mysteriously magic horse as far and as fast as her magic swan can fly. And so, of course, he accepts the challenge. And the swan flies and the horse runs after it, but no matter how fast or how far that swan goes, the horse follows and Dune wins the challenge and he survives a second night and so in the morning he demands that the lady marry him. She's run out of challenges by that point and so she has to accept and they marry and there is a feast and celebration for three days. 
and do to the lady, spend the night together, three nights in fact. But then, on the fourth morning, he gets up and he's had enough. He tells the lady that he's off. He's had enough of her and he's going to go back to France and make a name for himself in the tournaments there. And he also tells her that she is now pregnant with his son. And he gives her a gold ring. And he says, when this child is born, you'll raise him as our son. And when he is old enough, you will have him trained as a knight and give him this gold ring so that I can recognize him when I find him again. And then he leaves for France. Years pass and the boy grows up. When he is old enough, his mother tells him the story of his father, Doom, and she gives him the ring. And the boy sets off for France. And he fights in many tournaments, he unseats many knights, until he finally comes to a tournament at which there is a very renowned old knight fighting. And he jousts with this knight, and they joust and they joust, and finally he unseats the older knight. And as the older knight falls, he sees the gold ring on his son's hand. It is Dune, and he recognizes his son. And of course, they have a wonderful reunion, they embrace, and Dune somehow explains his strange behavior. And the son <laughs> takes him back to Edinburgh. And they meet with his mother again. They are reconciled, and they all live happily ever after. <laughs> and about these extraordinary events, the Bretons composed a lay, and King Halcon and Brother Robert had it translated into Old Norse.